All right. Uh, we're back in Judges. Uh, we we weren't in Judges the last few weeks. Did some, uh, did some teaching on John chapter 1, uh, centered around Christmas. And uh, I was anxious. I wanted to get right back uh, to Judges. And um, I forgot what was coming right after where I left off. Um, so let's read the passage for tonight, and then we'll get going. Then the Spirit of the Lord uh, was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering." So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from a roar to the neighborhood of Meneth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to the home of his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has been done, what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, this is uh, your word. And uh, Lord, we know that because uh, you reign in heaven and have sent your Holy Spirit to us, that, Lord, that you are active among us. So, Lord, I pray that you would take uh, these means, your word and your spirit, and, uh, Lord, cause us to become new people uh, who are more shaped into your image. Uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, the first time I read this passage, I was in seminary, <clears throat> and uh, I was in a preaching class, and I uh, in our preaching class, our professor had a fishbowl, and in the fishbowl, he had about 15 small pieces of paper. And on those 15 small pieces of paper uh, were different passages all across uh, the Bible. Uh, in, his, in his view, 15 of the hardest passages to preach. And before we put our hand in the bowl and picked out our passage, uh, he gave us a list of the passages, and he said, I want you to go home, uh, read these passages, uh, and see what you might pick out. So I read these 15 passages, and I remember when I got to this one, I thought, please, please don't give me Judges chapter 11. I didn't get it, but my best friend did, and I laughed at him the whole time he prepared a sermon. 
And uh, even before, when um, as uh, we thought about what it is we might be walking through this year, and uh, when I was thinking of Judges, I thought, oh man, there's that weird passage in chapter 11 that I'm, I can't skip. I'm going to have to do something with it. And so here we are, and, and talking about Judges chapter 11. But before uh, we really get to, to 29, you've got to know what happens in verses 1 to 28. Uh, where we left off before, we left off in uh, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. And really, the chapter 10 kind of gives you an overview of what's been going on in Israel in chapters 1 through 9. And so that's what the end of 10 is like. And then, uh, and then we get to 11. In 11, we've got a new judge on the scene. It's Jephthah. Uh, the God's people, you remember the cycle, uh, God's people rebel against him. God sends retribution for their sin by, through a foreign oppressor. This time, it's the Ammonites. Uh, it's so bad that God's people uh, cry out to him and repent. And when, God, when they repent, God sends them a rescuer. And this time, it's in the form of Jephthah. And so he sends out Jephthah. And uh, when we get to verses 1 through 27, we see that the brother loved to use his words. And his words, in the end, are what got him in trouble, Right? Uh, have, they ever, have your words ever gotten you in trouble? Did it happen during the holidays? Well, it happened to me this weekend. Uh, this weekend, I did a wedding for, they're not here, the two people who are usually with us. And uh, I, I said, well, Grandma and Grandpa, I guess uh, you guys will come in at this point. We were at the rehearsal. And uh, they said, we're no longer uh, together. And I thought, oh, gosh. I just felt so embarrassed. And then I looked at the bride, and I was like, you didn't tell me uh, about this. But maybe this has happened to you. Maybe you asked someone, how's your dating relationship going? But you didn't know that they had broken up just a few days before. Maybe you asked somebody, hey, how's your dog? Not realizing the dog had passed. You know, it's like digging a hole for yourself, but you're not using a shovel. You're using your mouth. And when you find yourself stuck in this hole, usually for some of us, maybe I'm just talking about myself here. We just keep talking and the hole just gets deeper. See, our lives really would go a lot better if we just keep our mouths shut. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28 is one. I'm hesitant to call it my favorite, but one of my favorites. And it says this, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. Let me say that again. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. So there's hope for me and for you, isn't there? See, Jephthah is a man who needs this proverb. And he's the man under our consideration today. But in these first 28 verses, what we find is that he's already using his mouth. Uh, verses 1 to 3, uh, we get a, a brief snapshot of his background. Uh, verse 1, he's called a mighty warrior on one hand. And then we see where this mighty warrior came from. And where he came from, he was, uh, he, he was uh, the son of a prostitute. His dad had many other children, none uh, through anyone else other than his wife. So he had lots of, so Jephthah, he was born from a prostitute, but he has lots of other brothers who came from the wife. So he is the hated brother. He is on the outside. But he's a mighty warrior. So I think his brothers were intimidated by him a bit. He was probably hard to be around. And so they run him out of town. The brothers run him to the land of Tob. In the land of Tob, he finds uh, a group, verse 3 calls them, worthless fellows. That's his companions. He has made a family among outcasts because his real family wouldn't take him in. 
So you've got this mighty warrior who hangs out with a bunch of delinquents, and you put the two together, and what you really have is a crime boss. He's learned to live life where he had to fight for everything he had. So when he's approached in verse 4 by the elders at Gilead, these are leaders among God's people, and the elders at Gilead, they come to him, and they say, we want you to fight the Ammonites. What Jephthah's thinking is like, ooh, I have a chance to negotiate. He's the guy who uses his mouth. And so he says, hey, if I beat the Ammonites, will you make me head of all your people? And they said, absolutely. And he says, I'm in. So he's used his words to get what he wants. So now he's commander over Israel. The, the, God, the God's uh, enemy are the Ammonites. And so before he goes to battle the Ammonites, he's going to do what he always does. He uses his mouth. And he tries to broker a deal with them. And he gives them a lengthy message on why the Ammonites should leave the Israelites alone before they head into battle. That's what we see in verses 14 through 27. But unfortunately, the king of Ammon ignored Jephthah. And that's where our passage picks up right here in verse 29. You see verse 29. If you cut out verses, I mean, look in your bulletin. If you cut out verses 30 and 31, and you had 29 and just jump right into 32, what you're going to see is the victory of the Lord through Jephthah over the Ammonites. It sounds pretty clean. But verses 30 and 31 is what complicates things because Jephthah does something peculiar. Jephthah makes a vow. In fact, as the whole narrative unfolds, it it unfolds in such a way that as the reader, you almost forget that God gives his people victory over the Ammonites because Jephthah uttered such a foolish thing. And then he makes good on his vow. So there is salvation here. It's just a marred salvation. And so you get done with this text. You and I, I, when I read this on on Tuesday, I thought, oh, my gosh, I knew this was my text. but I have no idea what I'm going to do with this thing. I had so many questions, but I think the two big questions that the text wants to answer are this. One is, why do we make vows? And the second one is, why do we keep them? See, he makes it in verses 30 and 31, and then he keeps it in verses 34 through 39. And we're in the season of making vows, aren't we? These New Year's resolutions. Uh, Why do we make these vows? Why did Jephthah make this vow? Well, it's because he had something out there that he wanted. And what he wanted was to be ruler over his people. So he backed up and thought, well, how could I be ruler over all the people? Oh, I'll defeat the Ammonites. Well, how am I going to defeat the Ammonites? Oh, I'll make a vow. And is that what our resolutions are doing? Oh, if I, uh, I, I, here's what I want. I want this desired desired outcome um, that I want. Let's just say that you wanted to be married. Okay, I think for me to get married, I'm going to have to make this much or weigh this much or act this way. So my resolutions are to do these things. So I'm going to back up in 2018. That's what I'm going to do. See, there's hope out into the future. That's why we make these vows. So we're really not that much different than Jephthah. And as we... Uh, and in the commentaries that I read this week, um, there was a lot of debate about why did he make it? Did he make it because, did he make this dumb vow because he's rash? And he's just moving at this hasty, frenetic pace? Or did he make this vow because he's manipulative? And I think the reason is both. Why did Jephthah and why do we make vows? The first reason is we're rash. The second reason is we're manipulative. Let's see how he's rash. 
See, in verse 30 and 31, I mean, he could have, he could have just said, um, his vow could have been, Lord, if you give me the Ammonites, um, then this will be real easy. I'll just, I'll just do a burnt offering. If he did that, then he could have just, he just could have, uh, he, he could have just given the appropriate, the standard animal as a burnt offering sacrifice. But he doesn't do that. His problem is, is he adds in this qualification, this qualification of, I'll give you the first thing that comes out of my house. Did he think that his daughter might do that? Or did he think maybe his uh, blind dog would come out? Did he think maybe his mother-in-law would come out of the door? (laughs) See, there's a problem here is that he's rash. He didn't think about it. And the rashness of his vow really just underscores how unnecessary the vow is. See, God would have given Jephthah success in battle even without the vow. We never hear God say, great job, Gideon, or great job, Jephthah. If you would have made that vow, I wouldn't have given you victory. He didn't say, this just sealed the deal. Your vow did, so now I'm going to act on your behalf. His vow really achieves nothing except negative consequences for him, and it mars God's salvation. It taints it. That's the first reason that Jephthah made the vow. The reason we make our vows is because we're rash. Uh, the second reason is uh, that we and Jephthah are manipulative. He's manipulative. I, I said just a, a minute ago, I, I really think that um, Jephthah, he didn't know that his daughter was going to come out the front door. That's why, that's why he's rash. But I also think that there's a really good chance that he did know that his daughter was going to come out the front door. See, Jephthah is so hell-bent on securing victory that he's going to offer his most costly possession on earth, his daughter. Because he thinks, the more I offer God, the better chance I have of getting God's attention and the more obligated God's going to be to obey me. Did I just say, God obey Jephthah? Yes. I know it sounds crazy, but it's really not that crazy when you're dealing with a manipulator. See, remember, Jephthah is the one who negotiated terms with the elders of Gilead to be their commander so that he might be the ruler over all their people. He's the one who attempted to broker a deal at great length with the king of the Ammonites. He's just doing what he's always done. He's just trying to use his words to get what he wants. And now, who sits on the other side of the table from him is God. He's trying to strike a deal with the deity. He's trying to exert control over God. And this vow is just a way of manipulating his circumstances to get God to do what he wants. Now we read this Jephthah story and we say, um, we get ourselves off the hook pretty easy, don't we? And we say, I, I never make that dumb of a vow and sacrifice one of my children. I mean, I know I'm a sinner in all marsh. I know I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. But can I ask you something? Don't you think that if you give something up for God, that God's going to do something for you? Don't you think that your illness, that your economic stress, that your family problems are all things that God ought to fix because, well, you're a Christian. You think, of course, non-church attending persons cannot expect God to answer their prayers because they don't worship him. But look at me. I'm Johnny or Susie Christian. We do stuff for God. Therefore, he should solve my problems. 
Don't you see this in you? Essentially, what we're trying to do is to buy God off with our obedience. One commentator uh, says in his commentary on Judges 11, he said, God has no toleration for this very human propensity to try to call the shots to be in control. He will not allow us to be the ones who determine our outcomes. And sometimes, as in the case of Jephthah, we suffer at our own hands because of our lack of faith and our manipulative devices. So friends, until we realize that God's not obligated to do anything because of our actions, we're going to continue to experience frustration in our relationship with Him. Until we worship Him for who He is and not what we can get from Him, we're going to be perpetually disappointed. So why did He make this vow? It's because He's rash and it's because He's manipulative. He's foolish. But now does He really have to keep the vow? <laughs> Can't we just stop with a victory over the Ammonites and just brush over verses 34 through 40? But if that's what happened, then we wouldn't have him keeping his vow. There's a reason that he kept his vow, and a reason that we keep our vows. And for Jephthah, the reason he kept his vows are two. He was rash manipulated on why he made it, but why he kept it was because he's worldly and because he didn't believe in God's grace. Let's look at how he was worldly. Uh, he's worldly because uh, little does he know that Leviticus uh, chapter 27, verses 1 to 8, give him a way out. He, he, Leviticus 27 says, you don't have to keep your vow. It gives you a way to break your vow if you make a foolish one. But Jephthah didn't take it. Why? Why didn't he take it? Well, well I think the quick answer is, is that either he didn't know that he had the permission to break the vow, or he didn't know that and he still chose human sacrifice. But either way, he's worldly. Let's just say he knew, he didn't know the permission existed. He was just ignorant. Well, that tells us a lot about Jephthah, doesn't it? It says that he's ignorant of God's prescribed ways. He's unfamiliar with what God has revealed himself to be in his word. So it does make a lot of sense. And because the people of God and judges, they're in this downward spiral, this spiral of, this downward cycle, this spiral of moral disintegration, uh, that's very possible he doesn't know it. The word of God is very far from his people because if you start way back, if you remember, if you've been with us, if you haven't, it's okay. If you go back to, to chapter three, the very first judge is a guy named Othniel. And Othniel, he has a long period of rest associated with his reign and we see no flaws in Othniel. Then we get to Ehud. Ehud's kind of the same way. No apparent flaws, moral flaws with him and he's got a pretty long rest. Then you got Deborah and Barak. Under their reign, there's a pretty long period of rest, and we don't really see any flaws with him. Then we get Gideon. Uh, now, Gideon's not a degenerate as much as he's just a, a, just a, just a moron. And then, and then we get from Gideon, we get his son Abimelech. G G Abimelech, what, he killed his 70 brothers. So there's obvious flaws with him. And as we go through, these period of rests just get shorter. As we go through, these people just become more and more morally disintegrated. And so by the time that you get to Jephthah, the people of God and God's word are very, very far apart. But maybe he does know about Leviticus 27. 
And he still keeps his vow by murdering his one and only daughter. And if that's the case, what he's doing, he's just joining right in with a wider pagan culture that all practiced, practiced human sacrifice. Remember where he lived. Remember, he lived in the land of Tob, around a bunch of worthless fellows. And these worthless fellows surely didn't reinforce God's ways to Jephthah. These guys, what they did know was their culture's ways. And their culture's ways was the pagan religions of the ancient Near East. And the only culture that didn't practice human sacrifice in the ancient Near East were the Israelites. Because God had forbidden it. He forbid, he had for, he, he for, he, he had it forbidden both in Deuteronomy 12 and in Deuteronomy 18. But Jephthah, he's so desensitized to the things that he should have found abhorrent because he's worldly. You see the big lesson here for us, don't you? The lesson is that we're far more influenced by our culture than we are the Bible. See, human beings, yes, even Christians, we're pliable, we're impressionable, and we take on the influences that are around us, and often we do so unintentionally. So the story of Jephthah should make you look at yourself and ask, what enormous blind spots do I have? Well, I think one that we have within the church is the value we place upon family. Now, I'm not saying family's bad, but I think usually in the church we take this value of family, we baptize it, we call it good, but frequently in the church our commitment to our family interferes with our commitment to Jesus. It's a blind spot for many of us. I think another one has to do with our money. I think uh, hundreds of years from now, maybe even decades from now, uh, church history is going to look back on the American church and it's going to reveal our enormous greed. See, we don't see these things. Why not? Because they're blind spots. And because we're influenced by our wider culture. And we're influenced by the culture even within our churches. So he kept his vow because he was worldly. Uh, the other reason he kept his vow is because he did not believe in God's grace. So to say that he's worldly is in some ways putting it in the positive. He is what he is. He's worldly. But to say that he doesn't believe in God's grace is a way of putting it into the negative. And how do we know he doesn't believe in God's grace? Well, think about it. He shows up at home and, 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 and his daughter comes out the front door. Now, I'm sure the moment that his daughter came out the front door, the whole two months that she was away weeping with her companions, there were millions of voices going on in his head. But I think the two big ones we're probably saying these two things. One voice was saying, you love your daughter. You don't have to do this. But I think there was another voice that said, Jephthah, you better keep your word. And that's the one he heeded. See, Jephthah had no concept of grace. He sees God as basically just like all the other pagan gods, one whose favor could be earned through lavish sacrifices. And when he finds out that he's trapped, why doesn't he just confess that his vow was foolish and break it so that he could save his daughter? Why didn't he do that? Well, I think the answer is he didn't trust God. He seems to believe that God's going to strike him down if he doesn't keep his vow. See, this is the same pagan, works righteousness view of God that led him to make the vow in the first place. He didn't believe in grace. So are we really any different? 
See, it, it, you and I, we all, all of us, we struggle to believe in God's grace. We really would live more restful, more radical lives if we believe God was already completely committed to love us and work what's best for us. Fast forward to the New Testament. Fast forward to Hebrews. In Hebrews 11, we have what's called the Hall of Faith. It's a play on words. You get it? Hall of Fame, Hall of Faith. In Hebrews 11, what's listed are a bunch of Old Testament characters and how God used them. And you know who makes the list, don't you? Jephthah. It seems unjust. How, how could a holy God commend such a moral degenerate like Jephthah? How's that possible? What's well, the gospel? That's how. See, there's nothing so evil that it can't be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And it's scandalous. It makes you and I uncomfortable because it strips us of our control and it makes it impossible to please God with our obedience. It puts our salvation completely in the hands of God. So do you really trust him? Have you come to the place where you've thrown off all attempts to amass more good deeds than bad ones? Have you come to the place where you've wholeheartedly thrown yourself on the mercy and compassion of God the Father apart from your obedience? See, we don't believe in a God of grace, do we? The other place we see God's grace here is that God will use us even in spite of our lack of spirituality. <laughs> Look at Jephthah. I mean, many times we think, God can't use me because I don't have my life together. Well, neither did Jephthah. And neither did just about every character in the scriptures. It just isn't true. So when we say, God can't really use me because I don't have my life together, maybe what we're really saying is, I have no interest in pursuing holiness. I have no interest in being used by God. So I'm just going to sit here. How does all this mean that character doesn't matter when it comes to Christian leadership? Not at all. Because if Jephthah did believe in character, and he did believe in a God of grace, and he wasn't so worldly, Jephthah would have enjoyed the victory and enjoyed his life moving forward much more than if he, when he was unholy and he was a degenerate. But let's roll back the clock on Jephthah. Let's look back at his upbringing. I gave you a few snapshots about it. There's really not a whole lot more to say because there's just not a lot of details there. But I think the details that we do have are significant. Because he was, remember, he was the son of a prostitute. He was the least loved son among all his brothers. In fact, his very own brothers were the ones who drove him away. His brothers were the ones who disinherited him from their father's wealth. And all this they did because of something that he didn't have control of who his birth mom was. Jephthah didn't get to choose who his mom was. So when you get to Jephthah, you're dealing with a hurt person. And you guys know the saying, hurt people hurt people. And hurt people usually deal with their hurt, deal with their sense of inferiority with violence. And the violence is usually inflicted on those who are closest to the victim. Hurt people also deal with their hurt by becoming ambitious, by displaying a win-at-all-cost mentality. 
And we see both those with Jephthah. So maybe the vow that you need to take for 2018 has absolutely nothing to do with what you are going to do for God. Maybe the best vow you can make in 2018 is to deal with your victimization. Don't you wish Jephthah would have? So what is it about your past you're ashamed of? What is it about your past that causes you pain? I think if you and I, if we're able to put our finger on these things and let Jesus, the great physician of our souls, heal us, we're not going to redistribute our hurt to others because we're going to see that that pain was absorbed by Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, repent for trying to be in control of you. We repent for um, our cowardice uh, dealing with our pain. Uh, We confess that we uh, don't believe in your grace. And uh, Lord, yet you love us. Uh, Lord, this blows our mind. And uh, Lord, help us to... Enjoy you as you offer yourself to us, both in word and in sacrament, uh, even now. In Christ's name, amen.